1: Dulcet strains can mean but one thing. It is time now for the next installment of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Hello, I'm your host, Nikki Dakota, joined in the studio today by the Film Guys, one live and in person. He is the storyboard artist for the Coen brothers for 20 years and counting, and many of the cool films we know and love. He's been drawing those initial sketches. We call him friend and J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, welcome. Well,
0: and in political debates, they call me Joe the Plumber.
1: <laughs> also joining us by the magic of the telephone lines That uh, crisscross our country From Culpeper, Virginia Deep in the vaults of the Library of Congress He's our man at the Library of Congress <laughs> He is the our, uh, the nitrate film archivist there And we call him friend, also film guy And George Willimon George, welcome
2: Hello, Nikki Why don't you relax with a nice game of solitaire
1: I am telling you uh, While
2: we talk about this movie
0: yeah, you're going to look at the Queen of Diamonds a little differently after we talk to you today.
1: We are gathered here today, as always, every filmically perfect to speak about a f- perfect film, and this time around, gentlemen, you have chosen...
0: The Manchurian Candidate. The
2: original Manchurian Candidate.
0: Yeah, not that cheap retread. Don't ever... We we don't go for that stuff. Just, you know, sit down and and brace yourself for a good black-and-white flick uh, from the era that we really like. Bio, one of the greatest directors of
1: all time. And who would that be?
0: John Frankenheimer.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. He became
2: a movie director totally by default because live television disappeared. What? He often he started out in live television on like Playhouse 90, things like that, and he said that that's what he really loved, and had that business not gone away, I mean, you know, the studios stopped doing live television movies, basically, uh, that he would have stayed with that.
1: So kind of he, he made the stuff that he... Wanted to see, I guess. Yes. Yeah, interesting indeed.
0: He, he was on a roll about this time. He did a lot of great films. He did one that we covered a while back, The Train. The Train. was after And uh, Grand Prix, which is one of my absolute favorite movies. Um, and
2: also the movie Seconds, which there really isn't anything else quite like the movie
0: second yeah I think that's on our list um, we'll, I think it is yeah we, uh, we can go for Frankenheimer he's like one of our favorite directors
1: speaking so. of our list it is not just something that comes to Jay Todd and George in a dream or someone that pays him five dollars to put this movie on the list no 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 but no, no, but no. He pays us Very. Like five
3: dollars
0: <laughs> he was in here today and he had all that cash out on the table he was saying you know six dollars what I'll movie give you a was six. he
1: wanting on there he uh, wanted it. No, indeed, Porky's 2 would not hold up to the rigid criteria that are required for each and every film to pass. There are rules, and gentlemen, those rules
0: are... Hey, the Manchurian uh, candidate creates the world that it exists in.
2: Boy, does it. And it wholly sustains that world.
0: And regardless of changes in society, the Manchurian candidate retains its meaning and entertainment value. And
2: that'll be a big one for us here. Yes. And also, it is never placed in any preferential or numeric order. Uh, Manchurian candidate is perfect by its own scale.
1: And Blame, that ain't that notes. the truth?
0: Well, is, you know, one of the cool things about it is that. One of the reasons we selected to do it is because it is election time right now in 2008. And,
2: right. um Not that anything like this could ever happen. Never.
1: <laughs> Complete backroom, sinister, hidden oh, it's uh, so cool. conspiracy. And
0: Angela Lansbury, who was on Murder, she wrote, because every time you'd see somebody being her friend, you'd say, Don't be her friend, because, you know, they get killed. You know, they come over for coffee. Hi, I haven't seen you in like three years. You know, and like... After the commercial, she's dead.
1: It's like the know? unknown uh, cast member and, and on Star but, Trek always died after Beam Down, her the she, new she was, friend. She had all her friends had red shirts. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's one of the very best things about Man Candidate is that, you know, one of America's, you know, best loved actresses oh, yes. plays the most vile
0: Ooh, villain contemptible <laughs> of the time. And she is just raging with with pride, contempt, and uh, just... In other words, this is one of the first movies where you had a woman take this kind of part. Uh, the only thing that I was remembering was uh, Requiem for Heavyweight had uh, this maw kind of character who wore an overcoat, and she smoked a lot. And this that woman is in this movie. She's one of the tea party scenes. But I can't remember, maybe, George, because you are the man at the Library of Congress. <laughs> is there a movie that had such a contemptible you know, villain role played by a female. I can't remember. Not as not
2: as vital as this one is. Not that I can think. I mean, there's some of those great early Warner Brothers ones where there's some really great tough female characters, but not like this one.
0: So, George, do you think you could tell us? In a, it's
1: pretty complex. Isn't yeah, it?
0: I know this is a very I, complex. Yeah, can kinda, you pound the kinda nails kinda, really quick on this? That's going to yeah, be a challenge. Do this I mean. Real
2: quick, ba- the basic crux of the Manchurian Candidate is that a group of American soldiers. Uh, during the Korean War, get kidnapped by the Russians and carted off to Manchuria to a, a laboratory in Manchuria, where they are brainwashed. And one of the members, uh, Raymond Shaw, played by um, Lawrence Harvey, is basically turned into a secret weapon. And to turn him on, uh, someone will basically tell him, "Why don't you play a game of solitaire?" Hmm. And then, as he begins to play, when the uh, the Queen of Diamonds come up, which is becomes the key to unlock his, his inner psyche that they programmed. Then they can program him to do whatever they want to. And then after he does it, he kind of comes out of like a fog and has no recollection of what he's done. So their idea, they have this big political intrigue plan to sort of guide the, the upcoming election of a new president to basically allow a candidate in who would then allow the communist influence to take over the United States. And, so. and then story.
0: the fun really begins. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so, the, yeah, the basic intrigue becomes when a couple of the other members of the uh, the squad, the major one being um, uh, a guy named Ben Marco, who is played by Frank Sinatra, uh, brilliantly played by Frank Sinatra, he's really, really good in this, um, begins having these horrible nightmares about some strange tea party party, uh, uh, something going on in his head that seems to involve Raymond Shaw and he begins to investigate this and he starts getting closer to the truth so of course you know they're they're after him too
0: well one of the uh, the uh, when you watch this movie most of the frankenheimer movies aren't you know they're kind of deceptively simple when you look at them and this is one of the classic deceptively simple films because in the beginning when they do this this uh, brainwashing thing this mental conditioning that was big during you know the communist thing you know the korean thing you're going to see how he cuts all these tea parties together which is absolutely sensational he does he establishes it in the finest form you could ever imagine you know because when you tell people about brainwashing hypnotism and they always do the same thing you know bark like a dog act like chickens and um but not in this movie he does this really cool 360 camera and and then you see the the uh, person who is at the tea party is this it starts out as a woman then it comes back around and it's this this very very um very odd looking korean war uh, north korean guy and then he's talking to russians and then they cut back and forth to people in the audience who are sometimes Tea Party women, and sometimes they're they're looking like uh, members of the Communist Party or the Russians, and they do this with incredible. I, now, George and I discussed this. We don't know whether they just shot thousand-foot loads of the whole scene and then just cut it together in the editing room, or else they went in there and specifically cut it together. We just don't know.
2: Right, and well, um, and the real beauty of it is there will be times also, and this is as as the scene progresses and becomes more and more unbalanced, there will be times when. The, the Chinese interrogators will be standing on the tea party stage with all the tea parties, and maybe some of the ladies, but they will be there. So they begin mixing characters into the different sets, so it becomes more and more unsettling and as then, the scene and progresses.
0: the real... And it it starts evolving because they take you into this um, very, very cinematic storyline where they they go to the next guy who's in bed sleeping. And I think it's played by um, Silva, right, George?
2: Uh, No, it is, excuse me, Um, that is James Edwards playing Corporal Melvin. Who
0: played a lot of movies. And this is another, here's another interesting aspect of this movie where they actually use African-American people with no particular uh, you know they're not they're not doing anything special they're just characters in this movie and this is nineteen this is early sixties so sixty two yeah sixty two you don't see much of this kind of and then when he dreams, he's at a tea party with with all these African American women. That's right. Which is so cool. <laughs> it's just, and then he go. He watches. He watches our built killer, our monster, which is good for Halloween. You know, this is an odd kind of Halloween movie.
1: Coincidental in many is. ways. Yeah. He's
0: a. He's no different from a Frankenstein monster. Only he's a sophisticated Frankenstein monster. He goes around, and he is. He is conditioned to operate on cues, and he walks over. And he kills somebody in that scene, and he does it with just this amazing amount of cold-bloodedness that, that Frankenheimer weaves into the fabric of this movie with with just so much texture. And by the time you get to the end of the movie, you're wondering, you know, um, oh, please, please, I know that you can pull out of this but. We can't really tell you about that unless'll spoil right. the ending no um, I don't
2: want to spoil the ending on this one there's there's a lot of people out there who haven't seen this they need to see it oh without especially us spoiling now. the ending cause yeah. it great yeah.
1: we're talking about the Manchurian candidate the 1962 Frankenheimer film uh on filmically perfect here on 913 wyso and I don't think we've even mentioned yet that uh Frank Sinatra
0: big this is one of his big comeback roles yep. um and and he's um and then uh Janet Lee Janet Lee is his, his Love interest, very Rosie. saucy in this movie, and um, uh, uh, Lawrence Harvey, who uh, is only three years younger than Angela Lansbury. Lawrence Harvey <laughs> who plays the Raymond character, right, his Raymond mother, yeah. and and she's really dominating, and you know because he can't have she helped build him, and he can't have girlfriend because his mother. This is one of the weirdest Oedipus. How do you say that, George? Oedipus. Oedipus movies. I mean, you, just thinking about it will send put your hair on end. You know, uh, should we? What should we do? That one first cut, there, well, George. Let's do the
2: first cut. This is this is interesting because, as I said, Sinatra's character uh, Marco, Mar- Major Marco, is closing in on on his his old friend quotation marks uh, Raymond Shaw, and and kind of meets up with him in his apartment and is trying to. Find out what is going on with him. You know, he doesn't know exactly the what what it is, but he knows that it has something to do with the uh, the wartime their wartime exploits. And one thing we should mention is that uh, Raymond Shaw got the Congressional Medal of Honor for bravery. But now, you know, Sinatra's beginning to question why and yeah, what exactly happened. Nobody
1: remembers it, right? Nobody remembers right. the so, event.
2: This little this little bit of it's a, little, a bit of um, information that comes from from Raymond Shaw is talking about a girl, the one girl that he loved, who was a senator, another senator's daughter, um, who was hated and reviled by um, uh, Raymond's mother's husband, who is also a U.S. senator, played by He's the, the wonderful James Gregory, who was better known, who was better known to most people as the old retired detective who kind of wanders in and out of Barney Miller. He
0: plays the same character.
3: Yeah, he plays
2: the same character. He's a
0: simpleton guy. He's really hilarious in this movie.
2: But here is a great little bit with uh, Lawrence Harvey talking about how lovable the whole
3: situation was. You just cannot believe Ben how Lovable the whole damn thing was. All summer long, we were together. I was lovable. Josie was lovable. The senator was lovable. The days were lovable. The nights were lovable. And everybody was lovable. Except, of course, my mother. Mm.
0: Lovable. Lovable Lawrence Hervey. That's a... Just... Getting you ready for the other clip we're going to on Well, you and one of the, movie. I guess we should mention,
2: talking about lovable and lovability, one of the, the things that the, the uh, communist program into the soldiers is when they're asked about how they feel about Raymond Shaw, they just kind of spit out this Raymond Shaw is the most lovable, most wonderful person <laughs> in the face of the earth.
0: <laughs>
2: and, of course, later on, you know, Frank Sinatra, talking to the psychiatrist who gets involved, um... In the, in this Who's case, played is by another you know,
0: Afri- African American. That's right. You know, no, unbelievable. This is one, one of the Raymond earliest Dahl. roles where they started really disregarding uh, color for casting. It wasn't color they just,
1: because of the color. These were right. just yeah, because people. Because back
0: then they said, "Oh no, no, we better not do that," because you know. But I think because Frankenheimer was such a skilled and um, good director, I think that he had a lot of power to do these things. Do You think and, people
1: interpreted at the time as being such, or did it seem like? It was no, presented- because, you know, you're, in
0: the beginning they show you pieces of the Korean War and they sh- you see African-American soldiers in there. Um, and then from that moment on, they weave – the tea party with all the African-American women is just absolutely stunning because you never see anything up to that point. And he does it with this just amazing prowess of a, of only a good director, you know, because right. I'm, I'm sure he was involved in that casting. If I'm not, you guys tell me out there, you know, let me know. So.
2: And that's the beautiful thing about those scenes is that uh, the women are probably, you know, the way brainwashing would work is the women are probably all women in his past life who are being sort of fitted over the actual characters who are there in the room. So it makes perfect sense.
0: And then they bring the love interest, the lovable love interest in, mm-hmm. in about a, an hour and five minutes into the movie. And then, as I like to say, it gets even better. <laughs> it does. It just and you you're, you're going to look at this Lawrence Harvey the way they photograph him when he's going on as his built killer and you compare John Frankenheimer's movie The Train he is the train in this movie that's out of control it's you know the a director makes kind of the same movie over and over again and in winning in uh, Grand Prix you have these violent race cars which are just you know, he had a way of shooting race cars and make them look faster. I don't know how he did it back then. But, again, we have this object that's out of control a lot of times. And Lawrence Harvey is this train that's just a runaway train. Wouldn't you say, George? He's oh, yeah, runaway I mean, train it, in this it, movie. And
2: there's also uh, – Frankenheimer is one of the few directors who can really utilize Dutch tilts and taking things off center to make a point.
1: And what is a dutch tilt exactly? A dutch
2: tilt is where, you know, a camera, when you put it on a tripod, if you have it straight, it's like on axis, so everything, you know, looks normal when you see it on the screen. If you dutch-tilted, it, it means you take the camera and you tilt it either to the left or the right. Usually, I find most of the directors kind of tilt it to the left.
0: No, bud. Oh, so no, meaning it's no, not... No, bud. You don't take the globe and tilt it sideways where Holland yeah. is. That's not the way it works. Get out of here. Go, go. Get <laughs> out of here. Get so
2: out
1: instead of here. the the, uh, the horizon being perfectly flat across, one side is higher than the other, you're saying. Right. It's crooked, uh-huh. and uh-huh.
2: That, that sort of is subliminally to the viewer puts everything off kilter. Yes.
1: Sure. Um, if you
2: know, I mean, I really really broad example would be the, uh, the Batman TV series the in the 60s time, yeah. where, you know, Batman's lair and all, the, and all the normal things would be straight on and all the, the bad guys' lairs would all be crooked.
3: Oh, cool. That's a really they, good uh,
2: example of Dutch tilt. There's
0: um, kind of another element in this movie you'll watch when they start yeah. to figure out things. And I don't know if this is intentional, but you're going to notice that they're, they're all sweating just above the lip. You know, they're lit just right. So you can see these beads of sweat forming, you know. Usually you notice it right above their lip in this movie and it, it's, it goes all the way through the movie. And one of the first villains in this picture where he's discussing with the um brainwasher himself, the Chinese brainwasher, is a Russian guy who has one of the best alpine rope tosses you've ever seen on his head. He's got this huge coal mover. <laughs> <laughs>
3: And he's, he, of course,
0: is our favorite kind of villain because he's sweating and he has enough. And the uh, the right. Chinese brainwasher accuses him of not having a sense of humor because they got Lawrence Harvey in a hospital bed and they're kind of like uh, building him. <laughs> That's what they're doing. They take his little skull cap off and it's almost like The Simpsons when they undo his head and go in there and screw around with him. I mean, that whole scene is just like they got him on the workbench and they're, they're – they're, they're, the russian yeah, guy wants him to kill somebody cuz he, he knows he must kill somebody and they're trying to figure out who can we kill with this man. And Lawrence Harvey's sitting there, you know, very very stoic about the whole thing. Uh, his character is absolutely perfect in this movie.
1: And I'm glad by the way that we're not doing a spoiler on this one because the the end really is just the the, the climax and it's just high drama, high tension, high tension and uh as a, as a... Well,
2: I guess one of the things you should point out too is that that although they very cleverly have planned this, this locking mechanism to turn Raymond on and off, it goes awry several times, making some interesting changes in the movie. Um, because at one point, Raymond goes into a bar, which sounds like the beginning of a joke, but um, <laughs> he goes in for a beer, and while he's sitting there, the bartender, who's just this garrulous old guy going on about a story, uh, just kind of spouts out, I told him just to went and he entertain himself with a game of solitaire, and immediately... Raymond asks for a deck of cards, and the next time, you know, and he starts playing solitaire on the table, and as soon as the Queen of Diamonds comes up, he freezes, and in that part of the conversation, the bartender goes, I told him to go up to Central Park and jump in the lake. So, you know, Raymond goes out, gets a taxi, goes to Central Park, walks down to the lake, and jumps in. <laughs> Just to, and, and, of course, Sinatra at this point, or Marco, has has sort of, Come in, because I guess they were supposed to meet at the bar, and just kind of watches Raymond do all this bizarre stuff, which of course really sparks his interest as knowing that something weird is going on with Raymond.
1: We're talking about the Manchurian Candidate, the 1962 John Frankenheimer film, starring, among others, Frank Sinatra. And there's a couple of interesting trivia trivia asides about uh, Frank's experience in the filming of this movie. For example, uh, (laughs) tell us there, Nikki. (laughs) Well, <laughs> that was a I was throwing to George.
2: Oh yeah, well one of them is uh there's a great scene and it's one of the first big scenes of martial arts in at least in an American film, where uh, uh Sinatra comes to visit Raymond and meets up with Henry Silva who's playing a um a Korean uh spy basically who has been placed with Raymond Shaw to to keep an eye on him. And of course, you know, Sinatra recognizes him. He's not sure at first where he recognizes him from but he knows that he's no good, and they get into this big fight, which sort that of evolves into... That is Henry Silva.
0: That's, that's the Henry yeah, Silva Henry guy, Sula. who's in a lot of
2: movies. And who's and still with us, still around. Um, and, and they get into this humongous fracas throughout the apartment of breaking furniture. And at one point, you will see Sinatra take a swing and miss and hit the edge of a table, and the edge of the table splinters. Well, that table was not a breakaway. That was a real table. And Sinatra very badly broke one of his fingers... But because they were on a real tight schedule, they couldn't get him to the hospital right then. They finished the scene, then he got his finger set, and, and for the rest of his life, that finger bothered him and was also crooked
0: on the top well you're also going to get this scene a little confused with a lot of the pink panther movies because it looks (laughs) like they use the same fight choreography maybe bruce lee was uh, watching all this i don't know but it's this is one of the most vicious fight scenes you're ever going to see it's cut really nice too because i think old frankenheimer really knew his way around the editing room because he everything is just every shot is just kind of laid out as I said, deceptively well, I think, simple. I, you know? I, I don't
2: know if I said this if we said this in the train, but I think a lot of Frankenheimer, because he comes from television, he, he kind of learned other techniques besides just filmmaking techniques that he could utilize, you know, uh, that to give more of an immediacy. Because you know he's so used to he was so used to directing something that was actually being performed as he was directing it, so I think he wanted to kind of get that immediacy in his films too. So he'll. He'll bust out the handheld camera and he'll do all sorts of bizarre camera moves and and angles and and some amazing deep focus shots in this film. That oh
0: yeah, go on boy! And there's a, like person in the front, you know, sweating, of course, and it, someone <laughs> in the background. One of the most disturbing elements of the Manchurian Candidate, you know, is when it came out in the early 1960s, 1962. Um, the Super Sixties hadn't started swinging yet in both realms of like what was going on or the violence that that was going on through the 60s, like all the assassinations. Mm. And there now a lot of times you will hear uh, about why this film was held out of production, and George claims it's the myth. And uh, what it was, I'll tell you what the myth is, and George can dispel it. It was supposedly that, that Frank Sinatra owned the copyright on this, and he was a pal of John F. Kennedy's. And he felt that this film was one of the reasons why he got shot. Because remember, there was a lot of assassination in the 60s. This movie was before all of
1: and that. It, and without spoiling it, there's it's, this, it's, there's a central point of assassination attempt uh, involved. Yeah, I
0: mean, this is like one of the first movies to really specifically build the movie into an assassination plot, I believe. Uh, and George, George claims, and I don't know this for sure, but George would because he's our man at the library. <laughs> here, here. And he will tell you why this myth is dispelled right now.
2: Well, the um, the story of of, um, of the, the film being held back after its release because of the the Kennedy assassination is is a viable one because Sinatra and Kennedy were good friends. But uh, the film was shown on television in the sixties and also in the early seventies. Uh, from what I've been able to find out, the the reason it kind of disappeared was because the copyright uh, was assigned to Frank Sinatra's company. And it just kind of got put aside, and 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 kind of fell into into that that sort of movie void that a lot of films do because of their copyright status. And it wasn't until I believe the late '80s, early '90s, uh, very late in his life, that uh, Sinatra figured it was time to get you know dust off, mentoring candidate, and get it back out for people to see.
0: Now, because so, because we're kind of pressed for time here, and we want to cover a lot of stuff. That is one of the disturbing elements of this movie. Was the assassination point? Now here, here is this (laughs) is one of the other creepouts. As we talked about earlier about this mother son kind of relationship. relationship, This is one of the creepiest scenes that you're ever gonna see in movies. This is what oh my hair standing up on the back of my neck. Now we're gonna. I
3: know you will never entirely comprehend this, Raymond, but you must believe. I did not know it would be you. I served them. I fought for them. I'm on the point of winning for them the greatest foothold they will ever have in this country. And they paid me back by taking your soul away from you. I told them to build me an assassin. I wanted a killer from a world filled with killers, and they chose you because they thought it would bind me closer to them. But now we have come almost to the end. One last step. And then when I take power, they will be pulled down and ground into dirt for what they did to you. And what they did in so contemptuously underestimating me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> and what comes right <laughs> oh right? Yeah, that is the a sloppiest thing, the unfortunately
2: being, being radio the thing you can't see right at the end is when uh, she finishes she plants up Big old Big smooch
3: small. right on, on
0: yes. uh, her son's ew, lip. Ew. Oh, ew. Ew. And I defy anybody. That is a time-honored shot, folks, for those yes, of yes. you who are studying cinematic form, because it's locked down and it goes and goes ew. and goes. Ew. Um, it's
1: notable also that I guess Sinatra had wanted Lucille Ball to play that role. That... Yes, he did. uh uh-huh. I, so I don't sad. know I mean, if that yeah. ever
0: figures into the creepiness of the notable. Notable, creaky. No matter how you watch this <laughs> No matter film, that. That would have been, been, yes, be,
2: been... I mean, you can see Lucy, you know, losing like, oh, Rayman. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, but... You yeah, know, Sinatra Ed comes Linsbury
0: in and he goes, was, was hey, Lucy, punch. you got some splinting to do here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we... <laughs> We've been talking about Shoo-be-doo. the shooby doo <laughs> <Get Shoo-be-doo. laughs> Several levels of creep-out involved in this very, <laughs> very tense story. 1962, the John uh, you're, Frankenheimer you're, you're watching
0: that whole scene. you think, oh no, oh no, oh no, she's going to do oh, 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 she's doing it. Oh my gosh, she's doing it. You're covering no! your eyes. Please tell me when it's over with. You peek through your eyes. Oh, she's still kissing. Ah!
1: <laughs> it's Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Uh, after uh, uh, just a little while here, you can even catch... Watch this again if you'd like to listen back to our commentary on the Manchurian Candidate. You can do that by going straight to the source perfectmovie.net that's www.perfectmovie.net you can catch us on npr.org we're podcasted on iTunes or you can go right to wyso.org gentlemen what uh, seems like there's just less and less time for us to talk about these there fabulous is, uh, there movies. Is so
2: this much, movies a thick one man there is so much in this movie go out get that's it we one. have just scratched the surface of this movie there's so much going
1: on so there we go there's your homework if you haven't seen it get it watch it And maybe uh, someday down the road we'll uh, we'll come back and uh Get into another couple layers of this yes, amazing film classic, gentlemen. Until next time, thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website www perfectmovie.net See you please